Unlocking true happiness with Tenzin Choki. Welcome to Unlocking True Happiness. My name is Tenzin Choki, and I'm a teacher of Buddhist philosophy and meditation as well as secular programs focusing on compassion and emotional balance. Each episode of the Unlocking True Happiness podcast will explore the Buddhist teachings as they're applied in our daily lives to deepen our experience of genuine well-being. Topics combine ideas from Buddhism with those from the fields of positive psychology, philosophy, and current events. I just want to thank you so much, Eden, for reaching out for a conversation during this time when there's just so much on our minds and hearts. We're recording this in the middle of November, just over a month after the conflict in Israel reignited once again, Israel-Palestine and the situation in Gaza, which is so much on our minds and hearts. And so, so appreciate you reaching out to have a conversation about all the things that are coming up for all of us. Tenzin, I always appreciate uh, our conversations and our uh, shared collaborative uh, wisdom. And so I know we're here in the spirit of service uh, and also joy today. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I would love to hear since we haven't had a chance to talk about what is, yeah, what, what is coming up for you and in your communities around, you know, these times, this situation, what's on your mind and heart today? Yeah. Yeah. I think the first thing I would name is such an encouragement for all of us to have more space and intention around consciously grieving and ideally having spaces and community where we can soften together, uh, grieve together, feel all that there is to feel. Just acknowledging that it can be such a conditioned habit for humans to go up into our heads and spin in this place of talking and thinking opinions and talking and thinking opinions and spiraling in that place when so much uh, flammability and so much heartbreak gets stirred. Does that resonate with you? Absolutely. Absolutely. And really, really, you know, I think this is such a opportunity for all of us. I keep thinking of, you know, the phrase holding both and instead of either or and both and you know, requires us to do exactly what you've said, you know, hold that space for an awareness of all that is happening and even when it's challenging to stay open-hearted in the face of so much heartbreak and suffering and really yeah staying present with with that with all that's arising yes yes and an element that i think is important to name around that is um, the 
opportunity, the invitation for people to truly take responsibility for our contribution to the morphic field, mm. morphic field as the uh, shared human memory field, the field of shared human memory and consciousness. And to acknowledge that, um, you know, we've all seen and we're all really tired of, um, really uh, wounded by the kind of reactivity and othering and assertion of division that happens when we're witnessing so much um, collective heartbreak. And for people to remember that there's a great opportunity here to let what's happening inform us, which we can only be informed when we go down into our bodies, away from mentalism, uh, into the space of feeling and being with, integrating and digesting from all that we're witnessing. And from there, there is an opportunity to recognize that there's a middle way uh, beyond identifying with just the doom and gloom and trauma of it versus spiritual bypassing. There's a place of really, really standing on our awareness that when we turn on the news, uh, the brutal, tangled, complex violence in the world, it is part of the picture and it needs us to bear witness with an open heart. And it is not the entire picture that I suspect billions of people are showing up daily right now, uh, silently, quietly, vocally, in thoughts, in truth, in action, in subtle ways that go less noticed, that are feeding um, wellness, that are feeding wholeness, that are feeding joy. And if we forget that, we are um, adding to the trauma and confusion of this time. What comes up for you when I share that? Yeah, I love I love you lifting that up. What what happens for me and I love you kind of naming our, you know, sometimes we we do in the face of so much distress have a wish to just bypass or just avoid or just shut down or focus on the positive in a non-realistic way or just say, oh, I can't even look at the news right now. It's too distressing. But I think what you're naming is this beautiful middle way of in the face of distress with empathy, making that connection. And what I've been so inspired by recently is exactly what you said. So many people responding with empathy and compassion to the suffering that is happening on all sides and, you know, rising up, speaking out and just staying attuned to what's happening without taking sides. It's so much easier. I think about the, the way the mind works. You know, we were talking right before we started recording about discernment, which is a Buddhist mental factor that is said to be one of the omnipresent mental factors where we draw distinctions and label things. And, and you know, just recognition is another translation of that word. But it's so easy for us with that 
faculty to go into this realm of right and wrong and good and bad and, you know, this sort of binary thinking. And, and so this is an opportunity, I think, to sort of hold that both and and to focus in addition to the suffering on the compassionate response, and which is part of our human nature. And I think when we lose sight of that, you know, focusing on that and just on the compassion and empathy that are rising in the face of the suffering and this collective outpouring of energy, uh, you know, in this situation to stand up against the leaders on both sides who are seeing things in such a binary way. And maybe through this struggle, there will be some sort of solution. I think it's only when things get pushed to these extremes like this, and then people collectively rise up and say, no, we stand against all the suffering that's happening. Will things change? So for me, in in addition to being horrified by what I see in the news, I feel so uplifted. Last weekend here in Santa Cruz, there was a an event put together, a kind of public forum to just hold the space for what everybody was feeling around this situation that was organized by a group of interfaith leaders called Tent of Abraham. And it's Christian, Muslim, and Jewish faith leaders in the community. They actually renamed it Tent of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar, because, of course, mm. Abraham wasn't the only person mm. in that tent. So I love the renaming of the group. And we had a few hours together, and over 200 people came and speakers of all the different faith traditions. And then we got into small groups to talk about our feelings mostly about what was happening. And I was the facilitator of one small group and two Israelis were in my group, one of whom was a friend of mine that I brought. And everyone said, you know, how healing it was to just create the space in a safe space with guidelines and with facilitation to bring all that we were feeling into that space. It was really beautiful. And I know many communities have organized similar similar things. So I think if we can respond that way with our open hearts and our willingness to to listen, to engage in deep listening of everyone in the situation, that's the way forward, it feels like. Yes. And a couple of things. I think in a few minutes, we might want to unpack even more the how of showing up. Yes, really adverse situations from deep listening and with an open heart, uh, even when we are as uncomfortable as we can get. And I also want to just thank all of those groups and organizations and coming togethers that I'm hearing about interfaith groups and other conscious gatherings to, as I pointed to in the beginning, uh, create a sacred space to navigate and to address this grief. And I think one of the pieces that um, I feel alarmed by and simply saddened by, I think one of the pieces that's just another more subtle symptom of the spiritual, social, environmental crises we're facing, the poly crisis today, is that the primary forum for communication in today's world is through screen and social media. And while that has some great benefits, um, 
so many people are hungry for a conscious space to connect, drop in together in a real way with other humans in deep listening and intention where alchemy can happen, where healing can happen, where something more, something that truly cannot happen through social media can occur. And so I think there is a kind of limitation or limited perception of what's possible or uh, limited assumption of how we now respond to crises because so many people are reacting rather than responding through typing on a screen. Does that mirror some of your own observations? Absolutely, absolutely. And like you say, you know, I've been talking about this so much recently as we're kind of coming out of the years of COVID and starting to interact more and meet in person more and how there's no substitute for what happens when you meet human to human, even though there's so, of course, many advantages and thank goodness for Zoom, how would we have survived the last three years without it and kind of connected at all, right? And now that we have the opportunity to meet in person, you know, I think about what some of my friends who are psychotherapists call the limbic resonance that happens when you're actually in the presence of another person and how it's not it nearly as easy to dismiss or be contemptuous or reactive when you have someone sitting there telling their story as it is when you're responding to a couple of sentences in a tweet or whatever, it's so easy to be reactive and push back in a way, but harder to be unkind when you're in the presence of another human. And I think, you know, as much as possible, if we can create you know, opportunities. I, I noticed in that small group, it was a small group of five for, for the for the breakout rooms in that event that I was talking about last Sunday. And like I said, two Israelis out of five and everyone reflected how much they learned in just a half an hour of hearing the stories and the feelings of that, you know, because in very, very progressive Santa Cruz, where I am, we mostly are hearing about the other side, and that's being lifted up. And that is truth. But there's truth on the other side, too, of of the suffering and distress and and how everyone was transformed just hearing that even for half an hour from another human. So absolutely, I think you're right. And I think we need to really bring awareness to the language that we use when it's, you know, more anonymous on social media, when we're not actually knowing who is going to be impacted in front of us, we can use our imagination to think of all the people that may be harmed by some thoughtless word or some, you know, judgmental or accusatory language that we use and and try and imagine that there are actual humans going to be on the receiving end of what we say and bring the same ethics to that kind of language that we would to a personal conversation. Yes. And also with all communications, be bringing discernment to, I think this is such a basic important question with all of our communications. What is the right venue for this to be expressed? What is the right moment for this to be expressed? And I know that you couldn't pay me, for instance, um, to have a really important conversation or work out a conflict via text, as an yes, example. Right? <laughs> so we, we learn that or even via email. Yeah. And yet, 
um, just to be clear for listeners, um, we are also uh, really celebratory of those, as you named, Zoom gatherings and online gatherings that are held as conscious, sacred spaces. Yes. Uh, my weekly Sangha and um, online gatherings in the name of healing. So when I was listening to you uh, share, I was really struck by the simplicity of the medicine of listening, real listening, deep listening. And I know that you and I both have uh, deep listening as a real uh, spine in our practice yes. and our teachings. I can remember maybe 15 years ago, one of the first um, retreats I led about deep listening, when I was beginning to teach relational mindfulness, uh, a man attended who was the head of a large organization who had tons of staff who was married, have children, and he broke down weeping in tears at the retreat and said, I am having a major wake-up call. I am having a recognition that I don't think I have ever listened to another human being in my entire life until now. Wow. And other people in the room could on some level relate to that yeah. recognition because they could relate to the truth that the dominant paradigm is not steeped in deep listening as a way of being. And I mean deep listening within to ourselves, which gives access to a much deeper peace and sense of wholeness and compassion and deep listening to one another, as well as to our planet and the invisibles. So what comes up for you around this? You know, Eden, as you're speaking, I'm thinking of, you know, so many of the things that I teach, the compassion training, the emotional balance training, and also the conflict resolution and conflict management skills training. And often I'm called upon to come in and teach a, a kind of introduction to conflict management skills. And mostly if I only have a limited amount of time, what I'll teach is listening skills. You know, I'll prioritize spending time on listening skills because like you say, so many people, well, we're never really taught how to do it. We know how to hear if we have functioning ears, but we certainly have not been taught deep listening, many of us. And it's really a skill that is worthwhile practicing and really bringing attention to. And I found in my work in the conflict management world, in the conflict resolution world, and in, in the restorative justice world, that 90, 90 to 95 to 99% of the work happens because of deep listening. And that's the non-negotiable piece of, of any of these things, in addition to the compassion, in addition to finding common ground, like one of the things that comes up for me also about the current conflict is listening to underlying needs that might be shared. Like we, we talk about positions might seem very contradictory and we use an image of an iceberg and we say the position is what's sticking up above the waterline, but below the waterline are all of these human needs that are probably shared with others, but that takes listening, you know, below the level of the position that might seem contradictory to what is, you know, what are the feelings that are there? What are the needs that are there? 
And then the curiosity and willingness to hear something that might challenge us that comes with that practice too. So it's not, you know, it's easy, but not simple. Like the skills are easy, but it's challenging because we might hear something that will, you know, upend our stereotypes, our projections, our judgments. And that was probably what was happening to this person in your workshop. I'm imagining, you know, sometimes we think we have all the answers and then the humility that it takes to actually bring an open mind to a conversation and maybe learn something new, but it's just absolutely non-negotiable and so powerful. It's like I said, I mean, it's just, seems so easy, but such a powerful, powerful tool to bring to all of these, all of this work. Yes, it's a tool or way that helps us, I think, beyond everything else, remember who we really are and who yeah. we really are together. And when you were speaking, what was arising was um, an acknowledgement of how many people through the legacy of disconnect from the natural world through the legacy mm -hmm. of colonialism and capitalism and patriarchy have maybe not been uh, taught to honor their deep receptivity, the seat of uh, deep listening, but instead to listen in ways that are transactional that are extractive to listen in ways that affirm and assume an I versus you and I'm listening to you. Even that is a false separation. Yes. The place of deep listening that we can really drop into, which uh, affirms the backdrop of unity across incredible division um, is listening from stillness, uh, listening from or through, we might say, our spirit. It's a listening that is auditory, but it's also tactile listening. I like to describe it as listening with every cell in our body. A lot of people are taught kind of active listening, but I think of deep embodied listening as the most natural <laughs> use of our yeah. receptive instruments of who we are. It's just that many people in our sped up world and transactional world and world of a lot of egos butting heads sometimes have not been given the space to learn the instrument of the receptive aspect of our nature. And so, um, you know, I think of... <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking of when I was a child and there was a game I used to love to play and it was just imagining that my whole body was an ear oh. that I could listen to the whole world around me. And a little later I recognized, oh, that was my first meditation practice. You know, wow. meditation is a listening. But what's happening in there is that we're letting ourselves open up to and be receptive part of, not distant from, not an assessor and judger of the world we're living in, but actually part of the landscape of it. Are you with me? Absolutely. And what comes up for me too, and I know we're both interested in this area, is, is the somatic piece, the whole body piece too, because of course we're so brainwashed into thinking that everything 
that we know is, you know, conceptual understanding. And then when we're with someone else, so much research done on how, you know, the mirror neurons and how just even physiologically we mirror the other and, you know, signals that we get through vocal tones and facial expressions and body language and just a felt sense of the other person. It reminds me of this research that I read about. And there's this kind of well-known French monk called Mathieu Ricard, who's connected with a lot of scientists and often gets used in these studies. And he was in a study, and I think it was at UC San Francisco, and they picked a professor there who was just famous for being contentious, just famous for being like super hard to get along with. And they were like, what's going to happen if we sit this person down with Matthew Ricard for half an hour and they hook them all up to the heart monitors and the EKGs and all the things. And this person came in, you know, very scornful about religion. And here's this Buddhist monk sitting in front of him. So he came in already just super triggered. And within half an hour, all of his physiological measurements showed soothing, even though it was basically he was just arguing about religion for half an hour. And then afterwards, he said, I couldn't stay mad. Like I was just with this person Mm. and his calm demeanor. And even though I just tried to be so condescending and judging you know he reported that he couldn't stay at that same activated state in the presence of this person so i think that's something those of us who try and live with some awareness have a responsibility also to bring to the world in these conversations is to learn how as part so much of our practice is how to model that state of receptivity, as you said, you know, of of calm, of centeredness, of interest, because there's so many ways we express that, even just physiologically in a way that models for other people. And I think just our very presence in some of these situations, if we've done a lot of that deep work, can be can be a factor in you know, in kind of calming things down or, or bringing that, that bringing everyone into that state. Yes, that relational presence and the cultivation of that is an extraordinary contribution to the shared field, to the morphic field. And when you were talking, I was aware of um, how when we're resting in deep listening, I want to affirm for listeners that there's room for all of it because there's more space. There's room for there to be wildly divergent views. There's room for there to be conflict. There's room for difficult emotions. There's room for um, what parts of you are feeling um, triggered by what perhaps you're witnessing. And there is also at the same time, the spaciousness, the spaciousness comes from the receptivity uh, to experience all of that multidimensionality, all of those layers with a clearer heart mm. um, from a really different place than the place of ego that wants to lash on to this, as you said earlier, versus that. Um, <laughs> I'm right, you're wrong, the yeah. polarization. 
That is such a habit pattern of ego. And and I, my wish for all of us in this time, what I said earlier about the invitation for us to take responsibility more wholeheartedly and lovingly for our contribution to the field. My hope is that more and more people are willing to take a deeper look at the mechanism of polarization, how it is seated within human consciousness, how it is unnecessary, it is not true or natural to who and what we are, how we can engage uh, across difference without it. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, so much of polarization and so much of this divisiveness, I see it really rooted into this in this sort of capitalist narrative of everything's a zero sum game and there's winners and losers. Right. And so we try and convince other people because then the more people there are on our side, then we'll win, you know, and breaking down that paradigm, which I don't think is supported by a lot of, you know, the natural world and a lot of human interaction, this zero sum idea that gets applied to everything. And it's just a false narrative. And so even critiquing that, questioning that, pushing back against that, because I think it's, you know, it's that we just sort of absorbed it via osmosis from the culture that we live in. And I think really pushing back against that and also the attitude that we bring to our communications instead of you know, we're right in trying to convince the attitude of deep listening is curiosity and openness to understand more. And so that's the motivation that we bring rather than somehow just, you know, presenting our position perfectly so that we'll convince someone else. So even questioning that, like really adjusting our motivation, which we do in so much of Buddhist practice before engaging in anything, we really check our motivation. And I think we're well served by doing that before having conversations with others or even just being with others. We are well served by doing that uh, before, during, after all of our engagements, all of our conversations. (laughs) In relational mindfulness, we talk about it as the first principle uh, simply of intention, recognizing if we were to, before every interaction, um, check in with our heart's intention, especially difficult interactions and conflicts, but everything, we get clearer about uh, who we are and how to bring who we are to the field. It's important to recognize uh, with some humor and a light heart that ego always has its own intentions or agendas. And so for instance, I could be here talking with you right now, either just dropped in to presence and flow and openness as we are, or I could show up with the ego agenda to be liked or to try to say the right thing or to be right and have you be wrong or to get attention. There's just all these hidden factors that if people aren't using their social practice, their relationship practice as part of their meditation, they miss out on seeing, right? That's right. That's right. And even, you know, even as you're talking about kind of showing up from that ego, you know, motivation. I'm thinking about times and we teach these skills too in the conflict resolution process of 
just reflecting back what you hear the person say over and over and over again. We do that often at the beginning of a mediation when we've got two people in conflict because they come in quite activated with their strong opinion and they're right and the other person's wrong. And then through that process of even verbal reflection of their emotions, of their needs, of their values, often then people will shift and become more receptive. You know, so I think... Too, even when, you know, another party may not come in with that motivation to be receptive and curious, they can move into that space through the process of being partnered with someone skilled in deep listening. And I've seen that happen time and time again. And then you just see this shift and then the curiosity emerges. And then, you know, after they've felt so deeply heard then the curiosity about the other person sometimes emerges and they start to ask questions and then that deep resonance can can unfold. I love it. I love what you're sharing and um, resonate. I've so many times that I've witnessed that similar shift. And what's coming up right now is just the recognition that um, it's our willingness to remember that how we treat ourselves and how we treat our world are one and the same that helps to fortify this. So we can practice that kind of listening that you're describing towards one another and in our conflicts externally, and we can practice it inside our own self. And so what I mean is when difficult or unwanted or shadow aspects of the self are arising, we can actually practice reflective listening. Oh, angry, pissed off, outraged one, you're here right now. Let me hear what you have to say. Let me hear what your energy has to say. I'm listening, but I'm listening without agenda. I'm listening from spaciousness and curiosity. I can even reflect back to you what you are saying and feeling. And then that offers a process of disarming, a process of compassion. You know, for everyone listening, for all of us to reflect on those deep listeners in our life who have made such a difference, whether mentors, friends, space holders, and also how it's felt when we haven't been listened to or when we're in the presence of people who have that that doorway closed. Um, yes. It's incredibly painful. Yeah. Yeah. And and I love what you're saying, because in all of this, we need to have so much self-compassion because, of course, we do have views and we do get activated and we have our own emotions that arise. And like you say, like bringing our self-compassion to those emotions arising because our emotions are there to give us a message about what we need, you know, and, and really sitting with that and like looking at the underlying need, but not expecting to be just the perfect calm one in every interaction and kind of understanding when we're activated. I have a friend, a good friend, and we'll often be talking about some quality that we'd love to bring to some situation. And then she'll say, well, you know, after all, it's aspirational. And so we kind of laugh about it's aspirational. And so not to hold such high standards for our interactions that it makes another reason that we're wrong. And to realize, you know, hey, we may may need, and I think in this case, so much more self-care at two, because it is, you know, those emotions and, and just being present to all of this does does often take 
an emotional toll and and what can we do to resource ourselves and be with community and you mentioned the joy and the love and you know balance things out too because it's it's easy to get it tipped out of balance especially when when we're trying to stay awake and aware in the face of so much going on in the world yes thank you um one of the the loves of my life is a program I guide called the heart of listening on behalf of our collective. And it's a gathering for six months um, online, though we used to meet in person and might again in the future of practitioners, facilitators, leaders, community activists, and people aspiring to simply create more of a bridge between their personal practice, personal and collective awakening. And we recognize that in order to hold this kind of space, in order to again and again and again drop into this relational presence that is so generous, uh, it has to, number one, be reciprocal. We have to be practicing living and listening and also really allowing ourselves to be witnessed, to be listened to, to be fully seen. And we need to be deeply resourcing as we hold space for the crises of our times. And so let's talk about resourcing for a few minutes. Because one of my hopes is that from this conversation, some people will be inspired to step it up in their fierce commitment right now to resourcing more deeply. And something I said in the beginning about how easy it is through the the news, uh, which only features the outrage and heartache of this time, which is a huge piece of what we're facing, but not all of it, that it's really, really a necessity that we all um, find our own through discernment, right relationship to taking that in and take that in when we are resourced and that we equally have a commitment to fortifying and strengthening and celebrating uh, our places of joy, our expressions of joy, because otherwise people are going to forget uh, what it actually means to be human and the extraordinary qualities of true nature. Yeah, and the the medicine (laughs) that we can all be offering one another right now. Yeah. So maybe I'll ask you first, what are some of the ways that you lean into that or encourage leaning into that? You know, one of the things that I often mention in teachings, and I might have even, we might have even talked about this in one of our previous conversations that I learned from this beautiful text that studied a lot in the Tibetan tradition by an 8th century Indian Buddhist master called Master Shantideva. And in the chapter of the text where he talks about enthusiasm and staying happy and engaged in the spiritual path, he presents these four powers and he says, the first power is aspiration. We talked about that or intention, wanting to engage. The second power is steadfastness, like you keep at it through the ups and downs. But the third power is joy. And he says, when we're serving, when we're trying to benefit, when we're trying to do all the things that we do to make the world a better place, 
We should do it joyfully. And he says, when you've lost your joy, then rest. Relinquishment is the fourth power. And I love that. He says, use joy as a litmus test. Because I think sometimes for those of us who are spiritual practitioners, social justice, racial justice, climate justice, activists, we can go about it from this sort of very Puritan kind of, I should do this thing. And it's, you know, get kind of exhausted and resentful, but think we should stay in it. But uplifting this quality of joy and saying we've got to keep joyful in the engagement and then to rest or relinquish your resource. And for me, I mean, I I think, you know, sometimes in the modern world, self-care gets reduced to going to the spa and getting your nails done or something. And for me, it's (laughs) so much deeper than that. And the two things that really arise for me is nature and community. You know, the resourcing I get from just being around good friends who love me and support me and that I could just have a laugh with or talk about something meaningful and just how deeply resourcing connecting to, you know, my support network, which is so extensive of people who have shared values. I feel so uplifted by that. And then being in the natural world, and there's so much research also done. A friend of mine, Eve Ekman, who's an emotions researcher, just mentioned to me the other day that there have been studies done that being in wild nature is even more resourcing than being in a manicured garden. Like we've evolved to relate to nature and nature full of biodiversity, even more resourcing than going to a nice botanical garden, even though that's wonderful. And I thought that was so interesting like we sort of evolved to also be soothed and connected to nature with a lot of biodiversity and so those are the two two main things I mean and getting enough sleep eating right all of that all Mm -hmm. of that too I notice especially the older I get the more non-negotiable eating well and sleeping is I used to be able to power through in my 20s and 30s but that's far from the case these days yes yes and uh I want to say something, uh, probably an odd point, but hopefully interesting. When you were talking about the wild, let's acknowledge. So you're saying how much more resourced we are from being in the wilderness than manicured outdoor spaces. It's because this deeply impacts our perception lens and so much of restoring joy in today's world is rewilding our perception lens, coming back to the kind of vibrant aliveness that doesn't, going back to what we talked about polarization, that doesn't recognize binary perception as truth. It doesn't see uh, spring and summer and sunshine as joy and decay and change Mm. and loss and slowing down as the opposite. It recognizes the full, vast, wide spectrum that includes everything from the wild, everything from nature, everything within us, the light and shadow as part of our vibrancy, our aliveness. For me, this is a core aspect of joy is going beyond the duality that says this is welcome and accepted and all of that is not or something's wrong with it. That way of going through life more in touch with the wilderness as our baseline, the internal wilderness, the external wilderness, the wild as home, 
Mm. Um, this is where I remember who and what I am. And then we can express that wildness uh, through some of my favorite ways of expressing it are through um, the stillness of meditation, which is so vast and wide that it holds everything. Again, this all parts, everything welcome uh, through dance. For me, dance is a practice I uh, live in my life and also teach and bring into retreats because the living intelligence of our bodies uh, is incredibly alchemical and healing. Anything that takes us away from mentalism and from categorization of life right. into the po place of poetry and the deeper, darker undercurrents of our experience, uh, the fire within, this enlivens our joy. So actually, collective and conscious grief work is also a pathway. Yes. Because if we're numbing our grief, we are equally numbing our joy. And if we're trying to show up as um, uh, modern adults in this world that has forgotten the wild, then we've forgotten our souls in my experience. Oh, Does beautiful. Oh, yeah. Yeah, beautifully expressed. And even as you're talking, I'm thinking of a core teaching of the Cultivating Emotional Balance course that I teach that all emotions are welcome. And I sometimes joke saying, you know, life shouldn't be a Pepsi commercial. Like we have for a reason. You know, we have anger for a reason. We have fear for a reason. We evolved with all these emotions that all have messages and depth to bring to our life we were teaching cultivating emotional balance once to a group of about 120 people experiencing incarceration at a prison in central california and my friend eve ekman we were teaching together and she said kind of sarcastically sadness sadness is such a bummer why do we have sadness and one of the incarcerated men who'd been separated from his loved ones for more than 30 years said, it shows us what's important to us when we lose something and feel sadness. It shows us that that was a, something that we valued and that was important to us. So, of course, we have sad, you know, so like you say, rewilding our emotional life, too, and not kind of buying into this narrative. There used to be an expression in Santa Cruz many, many years ago that I just always drove me crazy. And people would just say, oh, it's all good. It's all good. Mm. You know, whenever mm. anyone was expressing distress or sadness or fear, and it just to me was the ultimate bypassing kind of phrase of trying to pretend that the richness of all of our inner world, including all of our emotional life, wasn't there. And yeah, so so the inner and the outer, as you say, I love that. I love that. Yes. Building. And when you're using that um, phrase, well, <laughs> life being like a Pepsi commercial and then that sort of it's all good phrase. Some months ago, you and I had a conversation about luminous darkness. Mm. Third book. And I talk in that book about my own experience of growing up in a culture of sun shining. Yes, uh, yes, let's that's right. Light. Let's avoid difficult conversations. Let's um, stay comfortable. And it's really interesting because there can be a slippery place that I hope people are very aware of 
in spiritual practice where if people use or turn spiritual practice into a standard, they think here's a category for how I'm supposed to look um, pleasant. <laughs> yes, yes. Equanimous. Um, they use it or ego uses it against the true rewilding that yeah. practice actually invites us into the place of going beyond categories and good, bad, right, wrong, light, dark. So in, during this time, you know, in our conversation that we're having today, while we're all feeling such collective heartbreak, there are so many choices, a full spectrum beyond the either numb out or bypassed on one side versus just bury myself in the doom and gloom and mm. depression of it. And I think more people need to uh, be reminded of that full spectrum beyond those two choices. Absolutely. And that's why I loved your book so much when I first read it before we'd even spoken to each other. And that's what made me reach out to connect with you because it resonated so much with my experience, you know, that the spiritual path, the path of personal growth of activism isn't just the Pepsi commercial love and light aspect and that creating space for all of it. And I think you know, that's something I'd love to encourage people during this time with all that's coming up around the climate crisis and all the global crises is, you know, inviting those spaces. And if if they're not around, creating them where all is welcome in the space, you know, with some structure and facilitation, you know, create space or just in your personal life with your friends. I've done that when my friend group, we've created space for these kind of conversations just as a way of mutually supporting each other. Because if we think that there's certain ways that we're feeling that are wrong and keep them hidden and that which is hidden becomes shameful for us and then no good will come of you know, feelings of shame around our emotions. And so I think that that allowing and embracing and, you know, really creating spaces for that are so yes. important during this time. Yes. And from a space with the orientation of we're practicing all is welcome, we're yeah. practicing relational presence, we're practicing the willingness to feel what's here and to get uncomfortable together if discomfort arises. There is so much possibility that can emerge from that kind of space. And just the experience that people get to have of resting together in the uh, unfolding emergence of a conversation like that, where we can simply be together with all that is arising. This yeah. feeling that, and it's okay, and that's okay too. And now my outrage is arising, this has space here too. And now my fear is arising, and it just helps to soften people's um, conscious or unconscious uh, fear and self-consciousness and places people back in this this field of of we yep even yeah. across mass difference difference of opinions difference of beliefs uh that there, there is there is we yeah and i think that's something we can model too those of us who are in any leadership positions or you know conveners of spaces is modeling being okay 
It happened at this event that I keep mentioning that happened last Sunday. My friend, Rabbi Paula Marcus, one of the local rabbis, and there was this Palestinian speaker and he spoke and he was really talking about the distress in his community and in Gaza in no uncertain terms. And, you know, it was a room full of 200 people and it was really hard to hear what he was saying. And it was distressing. And then right after he spoke, Rabbi Paula got up. I've, I've forgotten his name. I would mention it, but I've forgotten this gentleman's name. And right after he spoke, Rabbi Paula got up to the mic and she acknowledged and she just said, wow, that was a lot. That was very intense. You know, that was hard to hear. Let's all just take a deep breath. And she just kind of held the spaces. We just breathed deeply as a group of 200 people, but didn't do anything to discount anything that this man had said, just acknowledged it and guided us through a practice to kind of ground and move into the next space. And I just love that, you know, of, of not minimizing or, or not panicking about it, just naming it and holding the space for all the activation that was being felt in that moment. Yeah. Yes. And I think this points to a passion you and I both have for skillful and wise facilitation yes. for skillful leadership in this yes. time. And I'm reminded of a quote by writer and activist, Adrian. Marie Brown of Emerging We both Strategies. adore. We're both fangirls of Adrian Marie Brown. <laughs> Big time. And she says how we need to shift from mile wide, inch deep movements uh, to inch wide, mile deep movements. And yeah. that for me so much points to the potency of what can happen through relational presence, through showing yes. up together uh, with intention. And I'm also just aware that, you know, the word facilitate means to make easier. Yes. Uh, when I'm teaching facilitators, it's this art of getting out of the way and making consciousness easier, making clear seeing easier, making a unified field easier. Uh, what a gift. We yes. need a lot more of that now. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And the and the courage it takes and then the training it takes to really hold that space. But just I think any of us who've had that experience of how healing it can be, you know, are committed to this work. Just that work of holding space for the both and and how healing that can be. And then the commitment comes. Yes, absolutely. And conversations in space where we're not going for a particular outcome. Like, yes. I'd like everyone to leave this workshop feeling this way. And yeah. like, uh, <laughs> one, two, three of emotional resiliency. But actually, let's drop into an urgent unfolding in presence together and see what naturally needs to, what organically needs to arise when healing is our intention. Yeah. That is so generous. And it's such a way of living in partnership with nature as well, instead of imposing or right. again, using listening in a transactional way. So, so much rich material that we're stirring together. Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I appreciate so much the depth 
that you bring to all the nuance of all of all of the work that you do in these conversations that we have, you know, coming, coming and bringing so much from your deep inner practice and your relational practice and your work with groups and your and your care for the earth. And yeah, just every aspect, you know, every concentric circle is represented always whenever I'm in conversation with you. And I appreciate that so much. I could say ditto. I feel the same about you and your embodiment. Um, I hope we get to meet in person one of these days. <laughs> yes, yeah. And I'd love before we before we go, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what you're doing these days, what's up for you, how people can connect with you. We'll have all the links as usual in the show notes to your website and to your book and so forth. But you've got some programs coming up soon in California. And yeah, could you just sure. give us a little bit of a sneak preview of what you're up yeah. to these days? Yeah. First, I'll say just because I uh, love the practice of transparency that this has been a big year for me. And so, somehow after my last book came out, um, a kind of momentum took off where I ended up experiencing a deep burnout for the first time mm. in my life. I have always been guided by my spiritual um, passion and I've always practiced living in a uh, regenerative and leading in a regenerative way. And even with those intentions, burnout happened. So that alongside uh, turning 50 this summer, I got to do some really deep reflection about how to be of service continually in a sustained way, as I have been for decades, in this uh, new form. I think the new form is... Mm -hmm. Being 50 Tenzin and alongside the the intense and intensification of uh, the needs of our world. So yeah. that said, uh, a magical thing that occurred is that we received a grant right at that moment for a managing director for our nonprofit. And so I'm just reminded of the beauty of when you ask for help from the heart, when we ask for support, we can become more open to the field of reciprocity. So feeling in a much more sustainable place now. Oh, beautiful. Congratulations. <laughs> um, That's yeah, amazing. It's That's amazing. Fantastic. And some of the offerings going forward are in a few weeks, I'll travel to California and I'm offering a month long retreat called the art of community rewilding the shared heart at Esalen, followed by a shorter retreat in January about setting in conscious intention for the new year, a process of really devotedly releasing and letting go of limiting beliefs, mm. um, letting go of imprints and habit patterns that come most from um, our ancestors and from our collective conditioning and how to actually work in a very conscious way with letting go of, of limiting beliefs. In February, my six-month Heart of Listening on behalf of the collective training will begin and we still have some space of that and it's an extraordinary extraordinary journey and in march late march embodied change making and social justice on behalf of life will begin and this is co-taught with kyra jewel lingo and conda mason through the berry center for buddhist studies and you know i'll tell 
listeners that if you visit my website, you'll see all the retreats that are listed beyond then. In the bigger picture, our vision is now that I live here in North Carolina and have a deep connection with the land here, it takes time and observation and listening to really drop in to earth connection. We um, are planning to start a center here that celebrates sacred activism, uh, presence and partnership with nature. And we're just in the beginning stages, but it feels really good to mean out loud <laughs> for yeah, years. Both beautiful. Embodied meditation and uh, permaculture have been part of my life. And this is a another iteration of those coming together. So thank you for asking, Tenzin. Yeah, absolutely. So beautiful. And congratulations on all of it, on getting the grant, on turning 50, on listening to what you needed, you know, during the period. Sometimes we just need fallow periods, especially when we've been you know, creating so much and producing so much, but it sounds like you have such rich new offerings and we'll have your website in the show notes so that people can connect with all of those offerings and also your books and, you know, everything that you, you've you already done and beautiful. I love co-teaching so much. So the thought of you teaching with Conda and Kiara Jewell, who are also teachers I admire so much, that just makes me so happy to think of the three of you sharing that space together because I find, yeah, when some of my happiest moments are co-teaching with people that I respect and love. <laughs> I am with you. And this is a program we gave birth to really at the beginning of the pandemic. So it's it's great to be putting it out now. And Tenzin, as you use the word fallow, you know, because we are just talking about joy and staying resourced, let's also remind people listening that uh, embracing periods of just being fallow, of pure rest is an absolute necessity for joy in today's yes. world. That yeah. the conditioning that says we need to be generative all the time, or worse than that, producing and achieving to prove ourselves or something like that. That's let's right. all support one another in dropping that uh, that BS. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's a there's a book that I love that I think we might have talked about already by an author called Catherine May, and it's called Wintering. And she just explores, you know, just these cycles that we have and living in the north of England during winter is a time for her that she, you know, just sort of hibernates a bit. And I think we've lost some of these natural cycles with our disconnection from the earth and the seasons and the seasons of light and dark with our electric lights and everything. So re-embracing some of those cycles, I think we're also well served to do that. I'm with you completely and love that more and more books are coming out about the darkness, about the winter, about yeah. rest. So thank you, Tenzin. I've so enjoyed reconnecting today. Me too. Me too. Thank you for your generosity of time. Such a rich conversation. I know all of our listeners will really, really enjoy this episode. So deep, deep bows of gratitude to you, Eden. And back to you, friend.
Thanks for listening. Learn more about this episode and browse our episode library by visiting unlockingtruehappiness.org. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Unlocking True Happiness is produced by Matthew DeVaris, intro by Russell Taylor, and our theme music is Nightingale by Asari. Stay safe out there. See you next time.